So hello from uh, New Jersey. I really should be um, in Florida right now, I suppose, uh, with you all. Um, actually, I really should be in Israel. <laughs> uh, that's what I was supposed to um, supposed to be, and that's even why I'm actually here with you all this morning is because uh, clearly a lot of things uh, got canceled. Things were changed. Our lives have been disrupted to uh, one extent or another. So uh, that's why I'm here with you, though. So, like, see, you've got these things that happen, and uh, they always turn out okay anyways, you know. <clears throat> so uh, I should be in Israel right now. That was the plan. But being that that got canceled, we uh, we I waited to see what it is that was going to happen for these uh, these days. And so the fact that I'm able to spend the morning with you is uh is a nice surprise a very nice surprise so uh i think i see we have some other um new jersey uh representation here joey cags nice to see you <laughs> so um uh, yeah so it's really nice to be able to be here um and uh share with you from the scriptures um and uh you all probably know new jersey is a pretty intense place to be right now I'm sure you guys hear reports down in Florida what it's like here. I actually hope to touch on a little bit of of, uh, of some things that have been happening here in the past days. So, and. Uh, if you would like to go ahead and turn in uh, your scriptures with me, we're going to start this morning in uh, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And in uh, Luke chapter 13, we are breaking in here on a scene in the life of the Lord Jesus. And uh, he has gone into a synagogue, which it seems that it was pretty normal for him to do. It's interesting to, to realize that Paul also found that uh, uh, something of a routine for him, that he would go in to the synagogues that were in the various towns and cities and where the Jews would gather together and meet. And uh, they would gather together for prayer, for reading of the scriptures, for teaching. And uh, uh, Paul would go in there. He would look for an opportunity to be able to do some teaching. And it seems like that's what the Lord Jesus would do too. There was only one temple, but there were many synagogues where uh, the Jews would gather. And uh, they would do this on, on the Sabbath. And so we're breaking in here on that kind of a scene where the Lord Jesus is in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And uh, so we're going to pick up at chapter 13 and verse 10. Luke chapter 13 and verse 10. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity, 
18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. This is uh, just a sad thing to have to consider that this woman was unable to raise herself up. She was bent over and this had been the case for her for 18 years. And it says that there was this spirit of infirmity, a spirit of infirmity. That's something we're going to want to hang on to as we move forward here. Uh, a very curious little phrase there. She had a spirit of infirmity. And uh, the Lord, you know what? It's just a beautiful thing about the Lord. He just took notice of her. Right? I mean, he just, the, the loveliness of the character of the Lord, it just is something to marvel about afresh just continually he was just so very much mindful of those things that were around him of the needs that were around him of people that needed his touch that needed his word and so verse 12 says but when jesus saw her for those just joining we're mark chapter 13 and uh, verse 12 mark chapter 13 verse 12 but when jesus saw her he called her to him and said to her woman you are loosed from your infirmity and now i know a lot of the things perhaps i'm going to say this morning are familiar to you um and you know where this story is going you know what happens perhaps in this story but especially for those perhaps who've never uh heard this account of the lord's life take a notice at the wording that he used here she is she's got the spirit of infirmity she can't raise herself up and he notices her She's been in this state for 18 years, and he speaks to her in this way, saying, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. You are loosed. And that's something that we're going to want to keep in mind here as the story goes on. We're keeping in mind that she has a spirit of infirmity. We're keeping in mind that the Lord spoke of loosing her. And um, maybe this is too big of a hint as to where it's going here, uh, but uh, he untied her. He untied her. He unbound her. He loosed her. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. What a wonderful scene to see, a usual scene in the life of the Lord Jesus as he touched the lives of people and healed people. And uh, God was glorified. And so it was the case here in this synagogue. The next word, though, is the word but. And uh, the word but can sometimes introduce something transitional from from bad to good. But in this case, um, it's something transitional from good to bad. So we look at verse 14. It says, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Here was this ruler of the synagogue, and he took his stand against the Lord. His, his heart was against the Lord. His thoughts were against the Lord. And uh, he was confident that what the Lord was doing was wrong. And it, what's amazing is that it didn't, it didn't even suffice him to keep these thoughts to himself. But perhaps... In accordance with him, his authority, um, his position as the ruler of the synagogue, he spoke out his thoughts. And so not only was he taking his stand against the Lord, 
we'll find out actually there were others who thought the same way. They were very much in line with this ruler of the synagogue, very much in line with him. And the passage will speak of them in the plural as adversaries. And so this man, this ruler of the synagogue, he stands up and he speaks out against the Lord so that what's going on within him is made clear to everybody. And that not only is he doing this, but he is looking to influence others to do the same. He's looking to influence others to think against the Lord, to take a stand against the Lord. And I don't know how much time passed between this verse and the next verse. Um, probably not much, but just uh, th- there's something profitable in imagining that perhaps there were some in the synagogue when the ruler got up and said this against the Lord and said, he shouldn't be doing this. There are six days in which a person can come and be healed. Let them come on that day, not on the Sabbath. And Perhaps for a moment, there were some in the synagogue there who thought to themselves, well, you know, this is the ruler of the synagogue. I mean, he usually does seem to know what he's talking about. He certainly knows more than I know. He knows the scriptures. Maybe he's got a point here. Maybe he's got a point. Maybe maybe this Jesus really shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. And for perhaps a moment or two, there were those who thought that this ruler, in all of his authority and his high position uh, and the respect that he had in his community, perhaps people aligned themselves or, or started to be inclined to think that he was accurate in his assessment of what the Lord was doing. But the Lord then speaks, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's like what, what's going to happen here, it's, it's like light just fills the whole synagogue. Light just fills the whole synagogue. Whatever um, confusion there was, uh, whatever just lack of being able to discern if what was being done was right or not and these conflicting you know, actions going on with the Lord and the ruler of the synagogue, suddenly the whole synagogue is going to be filled with, with, with light. Why? Because the Lord is going to speak. <laughs> the Lord is going to speak. And that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing when the Lord speaks, when his word breaks forth really on anything. It's like the giving of light. And so the Lord is going to He's going to break into this whole scene as he speaks and brings in light. And it's going to result in complete humiliation on this ruler and anyone who's in their hearts aligning themselves with him. Look what it says next in verse 15. The Lord then answered him and said, hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath Loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it. So, I mean, his opening line here is hypocrites. Um, you know, it was appropriate. It was absolutely appropriate. The Lord's going to make it very clear that um, they're being hypocritical. As he makes reference to the fact that each one of them, undoubtedly, on the Sabbath, who has an ox or a donkey that is tied up, will unloose it, right? Will untie it. Lead it to water and water it on the Sabbath day. And I'd like to, I know, you know, sometimes I use this sanctified imagination here, but I just think it would be quite fun to find out that on that particular day, 
that ruler of the synagogue and every single one who was aligning themselves with him that day, every single one of them earlier that day had done that exact thing. They had loosed their ox, they had loosed their donkey and taken it to water. The Lord's not done with his point yet. He's got their attention. And then he says, verse 16, So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham. And I just pause there because we're transitioning here in the Lord's reasoning here to from animals that you would show enough kindness to to untie them so that they can get something to drink. We're moving from animals to a daughter of Abraham. A daughter of Abraham. Really what you could just hear him saying is that this is family. I, I made reference to your animals. But this woman... She's family. You are all. You all claim to be the children of Abraham. This is a daughter of Abraham. This is family. So ought not this woman, verse 16, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound. That brings us back to the fact that she had a spirit of infirmity. We're going to read a verse in the book of Acts in a, a few minutes here that's so enlightening in regard to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in connection particularly to this story. Jesus reveals that this woman has been bound by Satan in this infirmity that she has, that the result of her not being able to raise herself up straight for all this time is directly related to an oppression of Satan. And so the Lord says, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And it's not too hard to see how the light just filled that synagogue. And all of a sudden, everybody, it was clear to everybody, even to his adversaries, it was clear how hypocritical they were being, how foolish they were being. Really, it was it was evil. It was evil. And everyone clearly saw that the Lord spoke. The Lord just broke in with the light of his words and everything was made clear to everybody. And they could see the hypocrisy of these of these men saying you would be willing to loose your ox or your donkey, but you won't let me loose this woman. She's a daughter of Abraham. You won't let me untie her. She's bound up by Satan. She's bound up by Satan, and you have an issue with me loosing her on the Sabbath. You're, you're, you're hypocrites. And verse 17, and when he said these things, all his adversaries, that's why we know that it wasn't just the ruler of the synagogue. He had the voice. He went ahead and spoke it out. But there were others who were in line with him in what he would say. And making his stand against the Lord. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. They were, they were put to shame. There was such a confidence initially. There was such a confidence initially by this man to stand up perhaps and speak out and 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 publicize his thoughts and take his stand against the Lord in front of everybody in an effort, no doubt, to influence others to think the same way. 
and it ended in complete humiliation. Hmm. The Lord had spoke. Light had come in, and they were ashamed. It's amazing to think that people could be so arrogant, they can be so confident that their thinking is sound, and when it comes down to what it is they're actually doing, they're taking their stand against the Lord. They're taking their stand against the Lord. And then speaking out to influence others. This is a grave thing. This is a grave thing. But then that word of God comes in and how beautifully it just brings light in. And, you know, for you and I, like, it is so necessary to be devoted to the word of God. It It is light and it is the word of God. And by reading it, we are continually bringing light into the circumstances of our life. And they help us to see them the way that we should see them. They correct us, perhaps, where correction is necessary. They show us the way. They show us what he is doing and what God is like. And, I I mean, I I don't say this just because I'm preaching. I say this absolutely sincerely from the bottom of my heart that I absolutely personally need to be renewed every single day in the Word of God. I cannot afford a day. I, I just have no confidence in myself that my thinking is sound apart from the renewal that comes every day in the word of god i i just i have to be constantly exposed to those things that are are in the scriptures it's the only safe place otherwise i might stray in my thinking the word of god is beautiful like that and so it breaks here and on the scene and suddenly it's all clear anyone who was thinking well maybe the ruler of the synagogue's got a point here you know he does have a lot of authority. He knows more about the scriptures than I do. Perhaps he's right about the Lord. Well, all he needed was the Lord to speak. Um, and uh, everything was made clear. And that's what the word of God does. And anyone who takes their stand against the Lord, who is convinced that God is doing wrong, eventually, at some point, they are going to come to shame over that. That position... This position that the ruler of the synagogue had and everybody who was joined in thought with him, aligning with him, that moment came when they were ashamed of taking that stand against the Lord. And, and that's a principle here that, that, that will absolutely be true. There, if anyone takes their stand against the Lord one way or another, at one time or another, hopefully in this life, they will come to a place of humiliation that they ever thought in such a way against the Savior, <laughs> the beautiful, wonderful Savior that he is, and all the loveliness of his character that anyone should think against him. It'll end in humiliation. There's a great verse. I won't have you turn to it. I'll just I'll quote the reference, but um, Isaiah 45, 24. Isaiah 45, 24. And it reads this uh, way. And all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. That is a um, a profound truth right there. All shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. Anybody who is angry with God, anybody who wants to point the finger at him and say that he is doing wrong, like here in this story, there will come a point in time where they will be brought to humiliation over that matter. That they will be embarrassed that they ever thought such a thing against the Lord. 
They will all be ashamed. Anyone who is ever incensed against the Lord will be ashamed over that. And so we see that happen here. In a very small window over a short period of time, we see that this unfolded in the synagogue on that day. But it's a grand principle. And there are people today, and we know this, right? We know this. There are people today who do this. There are people who are so confident in their thinking against the Lord um, that, that they'll take their stand against the Lord. They'll interpret the circumstances of their life. They'll interpret the circumstances of someone else's life or the world. And they will come to their own assessment about God concerning how they view things. And their conclusion is that he is not doing what is right. So confident. So, I mean, there's a measure, I'm sure, sometimes of ignorance. But there's also a measure at times of arrogance that such would think uh, 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 in a way like that against God. And one way or another, at one time or another, they'll be humiliated, ashamed that they ever thought in such a way as that. Meanwhile, and here's the one thing I, I wanted to really move towards and have resonate with us is that in the midst of this, in the midst of, of this opposition, of even before the ruler speaks out, the Lord could see in the hearts, no doubt, that there were those who were resisting him, that there are those who were thinking against him and accusing him, um, who were bitter and angry with him. He could see that. And in the midst of this assessment of his beautiful character, what's he doing? What's he doing? He's at work. <laughs> Don't you just love, you just love that? I mean, he's at work. He's doing these wonderful things. Like in this story here, he, he's moving with a heart filled with compassion and tenderness. And here's a woman who's been bound up by Satan for 18 years. And he has a mind to lose her from this spirit of infirmity and bring God glory. The very works that the Father had given him to do, he was doing. This is what he's doing. In the midst of opposition, in the midst of resistance, um, in the midst of enemies and adversaries, the Lord is at work. This is just a lovely thought for the people of God to be so sure of, so absolutely sure of, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter who it is and with what authority and position they may have, no matter who stands up and wants to speak against our Lord, we do not believe them. <laughs> we do not go along with them. We do not concur with them. We don't hopefully even doubt, but I know sometimes that might be the case. But we know our God. We know what he is like. We know his character and we know that he is at work. And what a work. What a work he is doing. Um, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And it's just one verse. Verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now. And I have been working. 
And he said this in connection with them complaining that he was doing things on the Sabbath. So it's it's perfectly like suitable to the passage we started off with. That he is working. That he is working. The Father is working. That he is working. And the people of God, the world may not know this. The world may not see this, even if it's right in front of them sometimes. But the point that I just really want to bring to our attention is that we need to know this. We need to know this. This is the verse that I was referring to before. Uh, a remarkable verse, an enlightening verse in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This will make us go right back to the scene there in that synagogue. This is Peter. He's sharing things with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And we're only, again, going to read one verse. Um, I hope that's not annoying that I'm only reading one verse. Actually, in a minute, I'm only going to read a half a verse. So. <laughs> um, so we're breaking in here because we just want to see you know, something very specific. Um, and these are Peter's words. And uh, look at what Peter has to say to Cornelius about Jesus. In verse 38, he says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good. <laughs> who went about doing good. And healing, look at this, Healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That's, that's our woman there in the synagogue. She was bound by Satan, as the Lord Jesus says, think of it, for 18 years. Bound by Satan, a spirit of infirmity. It's like there's this direct connection, in this context anyways, a direct connection between somebody's infirmity and demonic oppression. And... Here it is that the Lord is going around doing good and and freeing people who are being oppressed by the devil, like this woman was. And it, it goes on to say, for God was with him. For God was with him. So you, you, you look at this verse and you say, you think back to this ruler of the synagogue making his stand against the Lord and all the others who were his adversaries there in that scene. And, and it's like you want to go back there and say, um, okay, wait a minute, do you realize... Do you realize who you're taking a stand against? Do you realize who you're voicing your aggression towards? Who you're resisting? This is Jesus. <laughs> he has been anointed by God, anointed with the Holy Spirit. You realize you're taking a stand against somebody who's anointed with the Holy Spirit. You're, you're taking your stand against someone who's anointed with power from God. You're taking your stand against someone who's going around doing good. You're taking your stand against someone who's going around doing good and actually healing people who are being oppressed by the devil. Oh, and, and by the way, one more thing. God is with him. That's who you're resisting. That's who you're speaking against. And he was at work. In the midst of this, this opposition, he was at work doing something just beautiful, always. 
always. Go to um, Acts chapter 14. Now we break in on Paul as um, he speaks and he says something about God. And again, we're just going to read one verse, verse 17. I know that we know this verse. It's a beautiful verse, right? Uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 17. Paul says, Nevertheless, he that is God did not leave himself without witness. So what we're about to read from what Paul is saying, this is God's witness that God is giving a testimony about himself, about his character, about who he is and what he does. What is that? What is that testimony that God is giving? It's an amazing, right, in Romans chapter 1 where we, we realize that God himself is showing things to people. God himself is showing things to people. I'm, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but um, I remember one time talking to an atheist. We were going back and forth and it just occurred to me, I said, I said to him, I'm like, you know, I don't even know if I should be talking to you. <laughs> and of course, that uh, raised his curiosity. I said, well, I said, according to the scriptures, God himself has shown you his divine person, his character, that you are without excuse. God himself has shown that to you. Um, and you're not even dealing honestly with what God himself has shown you. What hope do I have? So maybe there's really no point in me talking to you if you're not going to deal honestly with, with what God himself is showing you. Um, that helped the conversation. <laughs> yeah. But it's an amazing thought. God is very active in giving a witness about himself and working very personally, very personally in the lives of people. I think that's something we're going to marvel about in a future day, just how very powerfully and how very personally he was at work in the lives of every single person and how accountable they are for nevertheless taking their stand against him. Not having any love for the truth, not having any desire to be saved, instead loving their unrighteousness. Well, what's this witness? He did not leave, verse 17 again, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good. I mean, this is it, and that he did good. Oh, this is the witness of God, that he has done good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. You know, oh, the rain comes down, so so much rain's coming down here in New Jersey, and things are just growing, including the dandelions, not too crazy about them. But my housemate, he planted a fig tree in the back. And uh, so, like, the excitement of, of hoping that, I mean, if you've ever had a fig right off a tree, they're just, and when they're ripe, they're just remarkable. We also have some issues with squirrels, so we've, we're not allowed to shoot squirrels here in Roselle Park, New Jersey. So we have to set a trap. We've, we caught one just, again, last night, so that makes four. Uh, we relocate them to, we're so kind. We relocate them to, a, you know, um, um, watch on reservation uh anyways so you just have this expectation the rain's going to come down and things are going to grow out of the ground and how beautiful is this that we can eat such good things and paul says to fill our uh, how does he say to fill um our filling our hearts with food and gladness filling our hearts with food and gladness what a lovely little phrase there he satisfies us and this is a testimony of him 
and he is good. This next one is the one I uh, turn to in the Old Testament, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And we're going to read this whole thing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the one actually it meant to be, uh, we're only going to read a half a verse. So Psalm 119. And uh, I just hope that if anything, if there's only one thing that really can stick with us after this message, that this would be the one thing. I mean, it's such a simple phrase, but it's it's really just a delightful phrase, and it reveals so much about our God. Psalm 119, uh, look at verse uh, 68, just the first half of the verse. Speaking about God, you are good and do good. Oh, that this would be programmed into our thinking, that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter who gets up and tries to persuade us that God is not good, that he is not doing what is right, that we, this is our disposition, and we never fail to lay hold of this truth, that God is good, and that he does good. Always. This is just never not true. He is good, and he does good. I love uh, what's here. It's so deep because you have the fact that he is good, which means that that's his character. That's that's the essence of who he is. He is good. But he's not some far-off God that's just, you know, removed and passive and not concerned at all with the affairs of this world, of this life, of us. That he is, he is good, but how would we ever know that? He is good in and of himself and his person, but how would we ever know that he's good? Because he's some, like the deist think, he's just some far off God, not kind of really concerned about us. I don't know how he'd be good in his essence, and that would be the case. <clears throat> but it's not just that he is good, he actually does good. His, the beauty of his character, he is constantly manifesting that he is he, he's continually putting on display the loveliness of his person so that not only he is good in his very person but he's constantly doing good out of the goodness of who he is it's a continual feast of kindness and generosity and compassion he is good and he does good and again i go back to this statement that we as the people of god we have to know this we have to know this we have to be convinced of this we have to be unpersuadable regarding this no matter what happens and i know it takes time faith grows but this is the direction that we have to move in and we have to stand firm in and god is at work even in the days in which we're living in now right um, this virus, uh, God is at work. I have a couple stories I want to read to you. Um, this first one, I wouldn't be surprised if you've heard this one because it just seems like the kind of story that would go viral. And it's a little bit older, so it goes back a few weeks. Um, and it comes from Italy. It's from a, a Dr. Julian Urban, 
a 38-year-old serving in a hospital in Lombardy, Italy. And I think you'll understand why I'm reading this as I go along, but I will tell you it's there's some some very heavy, um, grievous things that are going to come before us in this 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 uh, this letter. So the doctor says, never in my darkest nightmares did I imagine that I would see and experience what has been going on in Italy in our hospital the past three weeks. The nightmare flows and the river gets bigger and bigger. At first, a few patients came, then dozens, and then hundreds. Now, we are no longer doctors, but sorters who decide who should live and who should be sent home to die. Though, all these patients paid Italian health taxes throughout their lives. Until two weeks ago, my colleagues and I were atheists. It was normal because we are doctors. We learned that science excludes the presence of God. And, you know, so they say. Right? I laughed at my parents going to church. Nine days ago, a 75-year-old Christian was admitted into the hospital. He was a kind man. He had serious breathing problems. He had a Bible with him and impressed us by how he would read it to the dying as he held their hand. We doctors were all tired, discouraged, psychologically and physically finished. When we had time, we listened to him. We have reached our limits. We can do no more. People are dying every day. We are exhausted. We have two colleagues who have died and others that have been infected. We realized that we needed to start asking God for help. We do this when we have a few free minutes. When we talk to each other, we cannot believe that though we were once fierce atheists, we are now daily in search of peace, asking the Lord to help us continue so that we can take care of the sick. Yesterday, the 75-year-old Christian died. Despite having over 120 deaths here in three weeks, we were destroyed. He had managed, despite our, his condition and our difficulties, to bring us a peace that we no longer had hoped to find. He went to the Lord, and soon we will follow him if matters continue like this. I haven't been home for six days. I don't know when I ate last. I realize my worthlessness on this earth, but I want to use my last breath to help others. I am happy to have returned to God while I am surrounded by the suffering and death of my fellow men. And the note ends with this, please pray for Italy. Did you hear that though? He says, I am happy to have returned to God. Here in the midst of a scene of sorrow and confusion and death, God was at work. He was at work. And it's unfortunate that he has to move to such extreme things. But that's how much he cares for people. That's how much he loves people. That he will go to those extremes. He will go to scenarios that are so intense and so difficult because that's what it's going to take. That's what it's going to take. And so he needs to intensify the heat so that the heart is finally touched and and there's a brokenness. 
And so this happened with these doctors. In the midst of all of this, these doctors, they turned to God. and <laughs> They turned to the Lord. And one of the things that's so interesting, I'm not saying that this is, you know, like, uh, just take it for what it's worth. But you had a Christian, which was the main subject of the story. This Christian man comes in here to the hospital, and he's shining like a light there, and he's he's talking to these uh, doctors and everything and influencing them. And so the, the, the virus takes him. And what happens to him? What happens to him? Yeah, I know there's grief that's here for those who were his family, but he goes right into the presence of the Lord. <laughs> he goes right into the presence of the Lord. So a Christian dies and gets heaven. And as a result of that, these atheist hearts are touched by God. I mean, you know, that's not not such a bad deal there. <laughs> I mean, really not such a bad deal. Oh, I can get heaven and then other people can get saved on account of that? Okay, well, well, maybe we're not, I don't know. <laughs> we might be in different places as far as that goes, but we can see, though, clearly. That God is at work doing compassionate things, even things that result in people being saved. This one I received uh, later. This one comes closer to home. This is uh, Dr. Sylvie D'Souza, 55 years old, chair of the emergency department, Brooklyn Hospital Center in New York City. Um, this go, goes back again a couple of weeks, few few weeks actually. Um, says there was a night of horrible weather and the intake tent for COVID-19 screenings was flooded. And what she means by that was like literally flooded because of the rain was a tent they, they set up to do testings and stuff. The floor had been completely reconstructed overnight, and that morning we had to rearrange all the equipment and furniture and make sure the computers and phones were running. Everybody helped. It didn't matter who you were, what your title was. Patients were already lined up outside. We were all sweating, and the day hadn't even started yet. I said to myself, look at all these amazing people. I felt like we needed something to encourage these troops at the front line. I said, let's all get into a circle. And then she adds, they weren't touching, so. <laughs> let's all get into a circle. And is there somebody here who is good at praying? Can you imagine the scene? An emergency medicine resident said, I just see like this like hand going up. I can pray. <laughs> and we raised our hands and she prayed for us to make the right decisions for our patients, for guidance, and for the protection of us all. Then we let in the first patient and they just kept coming. The daily prayer is what we do now. And you just, you know that if these circumstances weren't like this, would, would this have happened? Very likely not. And so we realize that when someone actually might take a, their stand against the Lord and accuse him of doing wrong in such days as these, that we as the people of God, we have to be convinced, no, no, no. God is at work here. He is good and he does good. And he is at work. I may not even see it, although we do see it, right? I mean, there's so many stories. I just watched one last night about a storage container that somehow had been kept uh, for months, years, I think, actually, 
uh, it had been detained and it was going to auction. It's quite a story. And finally, it was released just in time for everything that's happening in uh, what was it, Nicaragua, uh, with the virus. Just amazing stories that of God is at work. But even if we didn't see anything, we would know that He's at work, right? Don't you love the story of Esther, right? You love the story of Esther because God is clearly at work, but His name isn't mentioned once in the whole book. God's name isn't mentioned once in the whole book. When you're reading the story, you know God's there. You know he's at work. He's doing a work that's going to result in the salvation of his people, even though his name isn't even mentioned. So even if we don't see anything, even if we don't see anything, we need to be convinced that he is at work. But we do see things, don't we? We do see things. And it encourages us. You know, this virus has um, it's gotten personal for for us here. I know most of you are probably aware of just the way things are in New Jersey. Um, but it's hit our assembly personally. Very early on, uh, our brother George McKenzie, um, he, he went home to be with the Lord Um it was it, it was just so shocking for our assembly. He was 83 years old, but he was in like great shape and vibrant, and he was so uh, helpful to the assembly. He was an elder, uh, then you know he just kind of stepped down from it in his older age, uh, but he was so helpful to the assembly, and we looked up to him. And you know, someone had made the comment that you remember those old commercials about E.F. Hutton, and you'd have like a a scene where there's this uh, restaurant and everybody's chitter chattering and everything, and one person says to the other one at the table, "You know, E.F. Hutton says," and then at the whole place just gets quiet, and everyone's like, and the tagline was like, "When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen." Well, this was the, this was our brother George. This like when he opened his mouth, there was just a sense that uh, probably something good's gonna come, you know. And we loved him, and um, he was good to my family in particular. And he was gone; the virus took him, and. We haven't even been together as an assembly together since this has happened. We know that when we get together for the first time again without him there, yeah, it, it'll uh, it's gonna it's gonna touch our hearts afresh. And his wife, dear sister, she had the virus. She went to the hospital, but then she was quarantined. So here, here, her husband of uh, sixty plus years has gone on to glory and she's alone no one can come see her her family can't come to be with her because she's got the virus she has to be quarantined oh you know we were praying for her and she actually said i could feel the prayers of the saints you know how encouraging that was to us when we heard that because we were so praying for her that the lord would sustain her during this time finally you know uh things have changed you know a bit so and, but then their son, who is an elder or assembly, he got the virus. And then his wife, uh, well, I'm actually, I can't, I'm, I actually can't remember now if he actually got it, but he was showing symptoms of it, and so was his wife and his son. And then another tier couple, a brother, his uh, his wife got uh, got the virus, and she wasn't well. And then just late one night, there was no other option but to call the ambulance and to get her to the hospital. And uh, she was there for a while. And when we would meet on Zoom to have a prayer meeting, the brother would be there and you could just um, 
you could just feel the <laughs> just you know and you just look at his face and he would say about how you know he tries not to let his thoughts get away from him too far and uh, so it got really close for our our family for our, our assembly and uh it's definitely in times like these when it gets personal right it's all one all well and good if i can say god is good and he does good when when something bad is happening over there to you know in this place or to that person over there but when it gets close and personal um like we have to know him we have to know that he is good we have to know that he does good and in those times, we might be vulnerable and someone might come along and, and speak out against the Lord and try and persuade us that he is not good, that he does not do good. But we, we can't doubt it for a moment. We can't doubt it for a moment. I want to, I know I'm, I'm kind of running out of time here. I want to just take a little bit more time, if you don't mind, and just show you something here um i want to show you just three people not that it's interesting the the first person i want to show you uh, in the scriptures um is the second person i thought of the second person i'm going to show you is actually the first person i thought of and the third person i'm going to show you is the first person i should have thought of so i don't know if you got all that <laughs> but, uh if you want to turn to uh, genesis chapter 42 genesis chapter 42 And I know people might have other things that they need to do, so I'm kind of at the end here. But uh, if you have to go, that's fine. For those of you who could stick around and you're not too hungry yet. Actually, you can eat while you're listening because I can't see you. Nobody can see you. <laughs> you're good. I can't even hear you crunch. So you're good. So um, Genesis chapter 42, the the second person that I thought of, who I'm going to first here, I thought it would be better to start with him, is actually Jacob. I actually thought of Jacob. When I was trying to think of a, a person's life where circumstances were of such a character that one might actually be justified in thinking, God isn't good. Look at my life. It's a disaster. And, and that the temptation is to... And this does happen to the people of God. If I had another message, I probably would talk about this. But it does happen to the people of God where there's these doubts. We have to be careful with those things. But we deal honestly with those things before the Lord. But circumstances can get very intense for us, very personal. And when they do, like we could respond and look at things like Jacob did. And let's remind ourselves exactly what's happened. Before we reread this one verse, what is his situation? Well, if we go back far enough, we realize Rachel has died. That's the woman he loved. That's the woman he wanted to marry. And you know that whole story. He loved her. So she has died. And then Joseph, whom he loved, the favorite son of the father, <laughs> um, he is reported to be dead. This dear son of Jacob, his beloved son, Jacob is reported to have been eaten by animals when re in reality, and we know the story that Joseph was sold into slavery and he's in Egypt. So he didn't really die. Uh, 
but Jacob thinks that he's dead. And so he's, I imagine as he got this report, there wasn't a day that you didn't cross paths with Jacob that his face was not filled with sorrow. He just, it was just a continual place of misery for him since Joseph had died. So, died, quotation marks. So then a famine comes on the land and they're running out of food. So you got this going on. So then he sends his sons, his 10 sons. He keeps Benjamin at home. He sends his 10 sons to Egypt. They come into contact with Joseph. And you know, they don't know it's Joseph. And a whole lot of drama unfolds there. And the only piece that we're going to go into here is that Joseph deals harshly with them and imprisons Simeon and says, if you want to come back for more food, you better bring your youngest son, your youngest brother, Benjamin, or you're not getting any food and I'm not letting Simeon go. But you can go now, take food back to your families and go back. So the nine brothers come back and they come back to their father, Jacob, and they come back with the food and they tell him that uh, the ruler of Egypt has kept Simeon in prison. And so Jacob's like, are you kidding me? Uh, now I've lost Simeon. And they say, and we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin with us. Interesting that they leave Simeon there until food runs out again. I mean, <laughs> I always find that a little bit curious thing that Simeon's just sitting there waiting, probably wondering what's going on. And uh, Jacob and his family, they, they exhaust the food or they're getting close to exhausting it. And Jacob says to his sons, go back to Egypt and get more food. And his sons say, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. And Benjamin is the other son of Rachel. The only other son of Rachel. And so we pick up uh, in verse 36, chapter 42, verse 36. It says, and Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. This was his assessment. All these things are against me. He, he, he took an inventory of everything that was going on in his life. And as he looked at it, he said, everything's against me. Everything's against me. But we know... <laughs> We know that God is actually at work. He's actually at work. Jacob doesn't see it. Jacob has a completely different idea of what's going on in his life. And yet we know, because we know the story, we know God is at work. In fact, God is at work in such a way that it's going to actually result in the salvation, and it has resulted, and will result in the salvation of that whole family. And not only that, it has a detail to it. That Jacob could have never thought, imagined even possible that he is going to find out that Joseph is actually alive. So, no, Jacob, all these things are not against you, Jacob. God is actually at work. I know things may seem like that, but God is at work and God is good. And God does good. In fact, the ending that God has in mind is usually quite surprisingly good. And God is very compassionate and merciful. That's the end intended by the Lord. And he's at work to that very end, Jacob, in your life. And Jacob just doesn't know it. Look what happens when they come back. Go to chapter 45. Chapter 45. Uh, 
So he sends Benjamin with the other brothers. They go back. A whole lot of drama unfolds there, which we really can't go into. So the brothers come back. Now Joseph has been revealed to his brothers. The brothers come back to Jacob, their father. And uh, they come back with this news that Joseph is alive. And so in chapter 45, verse 26, And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And look at this. (laughs) Jacob's heart stood still. Some translations may say his, his heart was numb. His heart was numb. Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. It's just this shock, right? This, like, it's like this dramatic scene of silence. I can just imagine it. As he tries to process, it's just too remarkable. It's too incredible that such a thing could be true. And we could say, is this the end that the Lord intended? Is this what he was at work doing? Well, this is quite surprising. <laughs> I mean, this is a little bit more than I expected, Jacob could say. And he's just stunned. Look at the next verse. It says, But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Aha. And you know what? I, I think it's the spirit of just the suggestion here. Revived since when? Revived since he first came to that conclusion that Joseph was dead. Just a a sorrowful life. And his spirit revived. Yeah, maybe it's just his spirit revived in that moment. But I think it's a grander statement than that. And what an ending. What an ending this is that the Lord intended. He was at work. He was at work. The first person I thought of, which we're not going to second, is Joseph. Joseph was the first. When I think about someone whose circumstances were completely against him, and you could say, oh, all these things are against him. He gets attacked by his brothers. They deal him with him harshly. They throw him into a pit. You can imagine Joseph there in the pit saying, well, all these things are against me. God is certainly not at work in this, is he? And, and then he gets brought up and he is sold to the Ishmaelites. And we love that detail that comes later in the story that we go back and place this detail into the story when he's being sold to the Ishmaelites, that Joseph is just in anguish and his brothers see the anguish of his face as he cries out to them not to do this thing. And he's sold off to the Ishmaelites. They take him to Egypt. You can imagine all these things are against me. Then he's there in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife accuses him of sleeping with her, trying to sleep with her. And he's thrown in prison. It's like, what? This is my life? All these things are against me. And then he interprets that cupbearer's dream and says to the cupbearer, you know, remember me when you get out of here. Remember, I shouldn't be here. Remember me. And the months go by and two years go by. And he could say, all these things are against me. But we know the story. (laughs) And it's like we want to say, don't worry, Joseph. Don't worry, Joseph. I mean, when you're reading that story, right, as you're reading it again, you're kind of like, you know, you're you're just you want to reach into the story and be like, it's okay, Joseph. Don't get discouraged. (laughs) Don't start to think that God is not good and that he doesn't do good. He's at work, actually. He's he's about ready to do something quite unexpected. (laughs) 
quite wonderful, that's actually going to result in salvation. God is at work doing good that even and especially results in salvation. And so what happens, you know. Joseph gets raised up by Pharaoh. He's ruler over all of Egypt. And uh, just one verse on him, the famous one. Go to chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50. It's neat to think of Joseph as the savior of the world. Everyone's coming to him, you know. What a a type of Christ he is, you know. Uh, Pharaoh is kind of like God. People come to God, you know, and they say, I need to be saved. And God says, well, you know, you'll want to see my son about that. (laughs) You know, this is what Pharaoh, everyone comes to Pharaoh. They're like, Pharaoh, we need to be saved. And Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. He'll save you. And Joseph is, is the savior of the world. They come to him and say, you've saved our lives, Joseph. And this is what God was doing. This was the work that he was about. And this is the ending that he had in mind. Absolutely. Look at uh, verse um, 20. You know this. But as for you, he says to his brothers, Joseph says to his brothers, but as for you, you meant it. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, God is good and he does good. And that's what he was in the business of doing throughout this whole story for Jacob, for Joseph, for the house of Israel, for the Egyptians, for the whole world, everybody who came to get food from Joseph. God was about doing something good. Even when his people might say, all these things are against me. And this is what I finish up on. I said I took you to the second person I thought of first. Then I took you to the person, then second, I took you to the person I thought of. See, I can't even say it right. <laughs> the, the, the first person I thought of. But now I want to go to the first person that I should have thought of. And for that, we want to turn to Matthew chapter 27. And this is where we'll finish. Matthew chapter 27. And I think you know who I'm speaking of now. As we finish Matthew chapter 27 and the scene of Calvary. The scene of Calvary. There's any place that we as the people of God want to remember. It's Calvary. We want to remember the cross. And when we read some of these details, we're reminded again of the horror of that scene. And we don't have time. We're just going to read a few verses. But we could go through the entire scriptures and bring out details that will help us to better understand the scene of the cross and we realize just how dreadful of a place it was. Um, Look at uh, chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Can you picture that? Can you be there on the scene as an onlooker? And what would you conclude? 
even just on what you can see visually, not to mention everything that we know the scriptures would reveal is going on there that's beyond sight, but just what you could see with your eyes, you would say, all these things are against this man. All these things are against this man. There's, there's no room for God to be at work in such a scene as this. This is a scene of darkness, literally. This is a scene of sorrow. This is a scene of humiliation. This is a scene of evil. Pain. Abandonment. This is the scene. God cannot be at work in such a scene as this. And yet we know the story. We know this is the greatest work that he ever did, right? Every single blessing that flows to us as the people of God, it's all flowing out of what he did here. Through the ages to come, he's going to put on display the exceeding riches of his grace toward us and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And all of the surprises that are yet ahead of us, they're all going to flow to us because of him and because of what he did at this in this scene here. God was at work in the darkest scene of human history, of, of eternity, both past and present. This is the gravest, most sorrowful, dreadful scene, and yet there has never been a scene where God was so at work doing something so remarkable that even was to the end of saving people. <laughs> he was at work bringing about something that would bring salvation. And we as the people of God, we need to know this. We need to know that God is at work, that he is good, that he, that he does good. And we have stories in the scriptures, we have stories in the news, stories in our own lives that will help to reinforce this, that we know this. Especially this scene. Especially this scene. I mean, look what it says next. It says, verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. I mean, clearly, God was doing something. Clearly, the whole earth recognized that, you know, that God was at work in this scene and that veil, and we love it. Well, we just love it, right? It was torn and it was torn from top to bottom. God was doing something. And the moment that our Savior bowed his head and gave up his spirit, and it looked like a scene of utter defeat, God was at work. And he tore that veil. <laughs> and it was basically like a declaration. The whole world didn't know it yet. But it was a declaration to the whole world that the way to approach me has now been revealed. Up till now, I was here. You were there. And there was a veil that separated us. But now through Christ and what he has done at the cross, you can now draw near. You can be reconciled to God. Hmm. Oh, that we would just remember these things to, to be refreshed of these things and to be so absolutely unpersuadable concerning the character of our god and that his character is continually being manifested in this world that he is good and that he does good and that the good that he's doing it's 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 a work of compassion it's a work of generosity and kindness like that woman there in the synagogue it's such such compassion you know and then we end here at the cross and we see the same thing 
Of course, our Savior rose from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of God, and you know what? He's still at work. (laughs) He's still at work. He's still doing the same wonderful things, still touching the hearts of people, still saving people, still bringing glory to God. Hmm. And we as the people of God, we just, we need to know that. When someone stands up like that ruler of the synagogue and wants to accuse God that he's doing wrong, they want to assess the situation and come to their conclusion that God is doing wrong, then we cannot believe them. We can't doubt even in our own heart. And maybe we might even have an opportunity to make a stand for God, to speak on his behalf and to correct people that they might know what he really is like. Well, thank you for the extra patience so I could finish that. And uh, it's just a delight to be able to listen um, today. And I hope that it will happen again in person at some point in the future. Um, so thanks for your attentiveness, I hope, anyways. <laughs> so why don't we close in prayer? Our gracious God and Father, we're just so thankful for who you are. You are a great and wonderful God, just beautiful in every way. And uh, we love coming to know this, coming to see this more clearly, to see how uh, just a delightful in every way that you are, that you in your very essence are beautiful and good. And yet you are, you do not cease to put on display your character in the lives of people, in the lives of people, even this very hour. And so we pray that we as your people, we who have trusted in your son, You have given us the right to be called your children, and you're our Father. And we pray that we as your children, especially we as your children, who are shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation who would accuse you of wrong, that we would shine as lights because we know you. We know what you are like. We know what our Savior is like. And that we should be able to stand firm, confidently, knowing that he is always at work, And the work that he does is a compassionate work. And the end that he has in mind is a beautiful end, a surprising end. And and, uh, we look forward to everything that you have in store as uh, we move forward in our life. And even in the eternity that's to come, uh, what wonderful surprises await us. And it all comes from the cross. And our God, if we can look at the cross and know that you were at work there, doing the greatest work you've ever done, then it doesn't, there, there's no circumstance that's too dark in which you are not able to work and do something wonderful. So again, we just pray that we as your people would know that and that we might even have a testimony to testify of that to others. So Lord Jesus, we love you and we just uh, ask these things even for your namesake. Amen. Thanks again, everybody. Enjoy your day.